0: Hello and welcome to The Alcohol File, a podcast series that explores how we can better understand the impact of alcohol in our lives. This podcast is provided by Alcohol Action, Ireland's leading independent advocate for reducing alcohol harm. I'm your host, Eunan McKinney, and today, along with our guests, we'll examine the issues within alcohol treatment services and discuss a recent survey report that explored the views of service providers throughout Ireland. Alcohol Action Ireland have published a report of a survey it had undertaken in 2020 that in the first instance sought to gather the views and insight from a range of service providers and that facilitated a review of what were the primary challenges and issues within the treatment landscape for those impacted by alcohol use disorders. I'm delighted to be joined today by his lead author, Jennifer Hall, and by two figures from the front line of alcohol treatment services, Sarah Cassidy and Mick Devine. Sarah is manager of the Ashery Centre at Care, and Ashery is one of Ireland's longest established addiction treatment centres, with four centres of excellence in Tipperary, Wexford, Waterford and Kilkenny where they combine experiences and expertise to provide a comprehensive understanding of the complexity of addiction. Mick Devine is clinical director at the Tabor Group, which is headquartered in Cork. And Tabor Group is the leading provider of residential addiction treatment services in Ireland, who provide support and care to hundreds of clients each year suffering from addictions to alcohol, substances, gambling and food. So to begin, I'd like to ask my colleague, Jennifer Hall, just to talk to us a little bit about the endeavour and the scope of the report that was published and and to maybe just outline for us what was the procedures and what were the processes involved in gathering this information, gathering the data, the interviews that took place, but also just to kind of give us an, an overall sense of what this landscape actually looks like in Ireland today. So, Jennifer, perhaps you could just give us some opening remarks in the context of that.
1: Sure. Thanks, Eunan. thanks for the introduction. Yeah. So, as you said, in this survey, Alcohol Action Ireland was seeking the views of services providing treatment interventions for harmful and dependent drinkers in Ireland. And we know that in Ireland alcohol remains, you know, the, the main problem for which people seek treatment. And approximately um seven and a half thousand cases of treatment are reported to the HRB, roughly that amount annually. And we know that in twenty nineteen, more than one-third of these were in residential settings. So these residential settings they deliver kind of different type they use different models of treating people, and they're 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 funded through public. And, and private sources so i suppose we really wanted to get a sense of the the landscape of the the type of interventions that they're using and um, their views on i suppose um, kind of using different models of care and their views on their demographics and things like also getting to the heart i suppose of 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 their views on the the challenges within the system and the 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 the, the, the barriers and i suppose the gaps in treatment we sought to survey all residential treatment providers of which there's twenty, and we got about half. So about half of residential service providers took part in this survey, as well as a smaller number of community providers. And what we did was we presented their quotes, broken down into thematic sections, and made recommendations based on what they said. And we carried out fairly in-depth interviews with with all of these people. So it was a real qualitative um, a survey in that respect. Um, and I guess you know th- we did start this pre-COVID, and it went on during the year, during COVID, and I suppose, um, and and Sarah and Mick can speak to this later. But what we know from from data sources throughout COVID, such as revenue figures, CSO figures, and other surveys, that we really do feel there'll be a big demand coming down the track for alcohol treatment services, whether in the community or in residential, because of the the increase of alcohol um, use in sure. the home during COVID.
0: So, to, if you if you could, could you just give us some jump just a very brief overview of some of the, as you said. There are four themes that you've outlined that are that are sort of running through the report. Sure. Maybe you could give us a, a summary of, of those particular themes.
1: Yeah, sure. So I guess um, mental health was was one of the the really big things that struck me anyway and that came through um, came through very strongly like all of the services that we interviewed spoke about the unmet mental health need that they see in people coming to their services and this could include things like just anxiety or depression and or right up to more serious mental health problems and so like all of the services recognised trauma in the client population but there was differing views across different services about how best to address this um, and a number of services you know really noted the intergenerational patterns that they see and that are all too often a feature um, of people with with um, substance use problems. And I know that Mick is going to touch on that later. So clearly that's a huge issue. And like and I'll talk about the recommendations later, but we'd be advocating like a no wrong door approach and because we know that all of these issues like addiction, mental health, right up to, you know, domestic abuse, children's health and well-being, they all intersect. Like so all of these services need to be aware of each other and increasingly be able to you know, recognize on people's underlying traumas. And I suppose that leads into one of the other big features of the report, which was reducing the impact um, of alcohol use problems on children and families. Um, And, you know, it came through that treatment services really recognized that this was an issue, but they kind of felt well, like dealing with children isn't what we do. You know, it's not our core work, but they all did recognize that they, and of course they do work with families um, in some respects, but I guess the children, um, so sometimes are often unseen like and we know from unpublished data from the National Drug Treatment Reporting Service which gathers data in this field that like 50% of people in treatment have children so you know that's a lot of children and we need um, resources whether it's it's somewhere the treatment services themselves can recognize the child and refer them on somewhere we need investment and, and help for these children to kind of process what's going on and um, to break the intergenerational sure, cycle I sure, guess. Yeah. Yeah, and then just to touch on the, the barriers and the gaps and then I'll wrap up and mm. let the, the guys come do, in. Yeah. yeah, so like in terms of barriers and gaps, like I think we really need to interrogate like why people, more people do not or indeed cannot access treatment. Um, You know, is it because that the, the barriers is that there's a really onus criteria to be admitted to residential service, which which kind of came up the, or there could be perceived stigma of going into residential treatment. And then there's also, of course, finances um, and timely access like access needs to be there for the person, you know, when they when they're ready to go kind of thing. Um, And of course, then, of course, there's gaps in that. We just don't have enough of a variety of services all around the country. And if we're really serious about a health led approach to alcohol treatment, you know, we must invest in services that are evidence based and evaluated against national standards. And we'll talk more about that later.
0: Yeah, no, that's that's great. Yeah, Jennifer, thanks, and it kind of gives everyone a a good sense of the scope and and the scale of the report that we that has been produced here. If I could, maybe if I could ask Sarah, maybe to just begin a a, bro- a broader conversation just now about some of these. You know these themes that we have explored. Maybe Sarah, if I could ask you maybe to pick up on some of the ideas and some of the comments that Jennifer has made there and observations about just what are the barriers to treatment and that area of of of, of you know I suppose that there's still a, a very pronounced uh, perhaps stigma that that's a barrier to people to coming into into services, but also this this idea of the the inadequate provision perhaps around detoxification services and that that's a barrier as well in some respects. So maybe you could lead us off in this conversation and and we can bring Mick in as well uh, uh, in relation to some of the other issues.
2: Yeah, no, absolutely. Thanks, Eunan. And it's a fantastic report, Jennifer, and it is very thought-provoking and touches on a huge amount of issues that we would have um, experienced in the recent years. Um, Ashiree really does endeavour to remove gaps, you know, for the access of treatment, Um, so historically we've looked at that, um, and one of the largest gaps that we identified was around the, the access for detoxification, which is very limited in Ireland. So in Ashiree, then back in the early 2010 around approximately, we opened detox services for the adolescent clients. So we've adolescent clients in Kilkenny, they're 15 to 21 year olds. And then we rolled out the same service in our adult service and care in Tipperary for 20-year-olds up into the 80s. So this this is a huge piece, taking away a massive gap in the services. So people historically would have tried to detox at home or on their own, and because of the level of alcohol use, that was unsustainable. They found it far too difficult to do. So we've established a multidisciplinary team that is – highly safe and manageable for a client to come in and residentially detox off of alcohol. Um, And we're still seeing, you know, at least 50% of our admissions are for alcohol, even though there's so much talk in regards to the increase in drug use, alcohol is still the dominant issue. Um, So that would have been one of the very big barriers that we would have noticed. The other big difficulty then is around obviously funding and access and stigma, like you said. Um, And what we do find is that our clients are coming from absolutely every demographic. So it could be your sister, your brother, your uncle, your child, your, you know, every demographic, every walk of life from, you know, high end solicitors to every issue, every background. So. I think it is slowly breaking down in regards to the stigma slightly. Um, and the level of desperation, I would say, has increased very dramatically and probably more so even with the pandemic. The level of desperation is getting past the stigma, if you like, because people are in such a dire straits, you know, at home. So we would notice then a big change in regards to people that may have been Functioning, functioning alcoholics and working every day are now in dire straits because of the lockdown and staying home and the passion of drinking had changed or shifted or moved um, and escalated a great deal more quickly. The other big piece then around mental health, as far as we work in ASHIREE, it's a very holistic treatment approach in that it's client-centered, so it's on the individual, but we work for, with everything from when somebody is a tiny little person up until the present day. And we really unpack all those issues um, and have a look at them and work with the, the clients in that way. So in order to do that safely, we've had to establish very multidisciplinary teams to include the psychiatrists, uh, psychologists, social care workers, addiction counselors. So, you know, a very comprehensive team to manage all the various issues. People are coming with very complex um, cases in that, you know, there are a number of past uh, adverse events, potentially, that they're dealing with. Um, and a lot of things just aren't spoken about, as you can imagine. Um, yeah. So it's the very safe place, you know.
0: OK, yeah. Mick, if we could maybe bring you in at that point as well, and just talk a little bit more about... I suppose what are what is a definitely uh, the, the 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 strand of trauma that runs through this this report and the observations in this report i mean um have you particularly obviously you you, you must have experienced in this particular area as well but there is there is definitely some degree of of, of an expression of caution that's uh, approaches some of the addiction treatment services in trying to address both of these issues do you have you yeah any any overview on that yes i, I can talk about that um eunan um 2017,
3: we undertook a joint research study with UCC where we systematically scored people's adverse childhood experiences. Um, And where there is a score of four or more, there is a high likelihood that someone will become addicted, will have mental health challenges, will not live the expected lifespan, and and so on. We began to be able to, to capture what impact uh, on the on the person's mental and physical health, uh, dealing with adverse childhood experiences had one of the adverse childhood experiences was that a that um, a parent was a substance abuser. So when people have ex have have had those experiences, they have a big impact on their ability to cope with the day to day demands of daily living, and. This leads to people misusing substances like alcohol, because in the short term, alcohol helps people to cope with day to day uh, demands. So when people come into treatment, uh, they can find treatment, a demanding experience in itself, and they are undergoing treatment without the resource of of, uh, uh, alcohol. So we have to be very careful in how we deliver treatment to people who become easily distressed or easily emotionally dysregulated is the term that we use for it. So for people to be able to cope with the demands of treatment, we have to get very good at helping them to feel safe in the treatment environment. And we also have to get very good at what triggers emotional dysregulation in people. Because that can really limit the way in which someone engages with a treatment program. But the advantage is if we can spot those triggers and help people regain emotional regulation, that is a skill that they can take out of treatment with them in the management of their alcohol disorder going forward. So it represents a challenge, but also an opportunity, because what we what we've always known is that people who come into uh, residential treatment have had very difficult experiences to cope with right back from when they were children. But it's only now with the whole development of traumatology that we can actually get very skilled at uh, making people safe and once people once we can offer people the safety of the residential environment they can then engage with a program to help manage their alcohol disorder much more effectively
0: mm. And as a matter of interest, I mean, I, I, again, I, I, I'm, 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 a lay observer on these matters. But I mean, is it, is it likely that it's better that those that twin approach is is, is better managed in a, in a residential setting or in a community setting, or is there is there a, a particular view on that type of approach?
3: Yeah. Well, I welcomed in 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 jennifer's report that you looked at the four tiers of treatment provision and the residential treatment option that myself and sarah are experienced in represents a tier four so it's the most intensive intervention and it is for the people with the most um severe alcohol uh, disorders so it is we're, we're definitely going to get people in who have been affected by adverse childhood events. So it is important that we develop a capacity to work with people who are traumatised as well as people who are addicted. But it's also important that we learn to work with people who have mental health challenges as well as people who are addicted, because you can't compartmentalize these out. As as Sarah said, we're a person-centered approach. So you're working with the person who, who, who has an alcohol use disorder, a mental health challenge and a history of adverse childhood experiences. And you can't really separate those out. That all becomes comes in the form of one person. So we have to be good at addressing mental health challenges helping people who easily get triggered into emotional dysregulation who also need to learn how to manage an alcohol use disorder so sarah used the term multidisciplinary team we we need to be able to hold the person in their In their fullness, we need to be able to provide that safety and that care for people so that they can make meaningful progress in managing the alcohol disorder, given that they have a mental health challenge and a history of adverse childhood events that causes them to be easily dysregulated.
1: Yeah,
2: The only point I want to follow up with with Mick there is in regards to the the longevity of the work. So, you know, like Mick referred to there. The safety of the of the facility and the residential treatment is, is imperative for somebody to even be willing to have a look at their their alcohol addiction itself. So we would see that the longevity of treatment, the continuum of care is absolutely vitally important. You know, so the 28-day treatment or with detox being maybe up to 40 days of residential treatment is literally only a tiny little foundation, a start for somebody to get the skills, like Mick referred to, to be able to cope. But it's the long-term continuum of care that is required to help somebody move into long-term recovery. So, for example, secondary care services, which is also a large gap in Ireland, um, the availability of secondary care services is quite small. In Waterford, we have um, units for male and female uh, secondary care treatment and then follow on to sober housing so we can provide approximately a year's worth of care for individuals. The difficulty for us gap wise is that it's so limited um the capacity is so limited right
0: I, if I can interrupt you just for a second just for the sake of our listeners I mean what do you mean when you say secondary care what does that actually look like
2: so you when when we're talking about secondary care, it's that the tier four as Mick is referring to there is the primary treatment. So, the very first treatment somebody has. But after that's completed, a step down type of treatment can be put in place that will work on people's life skills and education and community and living in the community again safely while supported in their recovery. So, it's a fantastic service. It can run for six months and then follow into a sober house, which would be, you know, a safe place for somebody to continue either back to work or school, etc. cetera. So those type of long term interventions are very, very effective, but they're so limited in Ireland. Right.
1: And that came through actually in the I think we called it aftercare in the report that that services said that, you know, this really the importance of 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 aftercare and those step down services. Exactly. But could I just pick up on a point um, just about the, the whole trauma and the ACEs and sure. um, what Mick, you were talking about and, and Sarah as well, like sounds great. But I suppose what we do know is that there are some services potentially, and it was even signaled in the report that, there, you know, they might say, what can we do in a six week program to tackle childhood trauma? And um, do we kind of want to go there when we're trying? And I suppose like what that, that seems to me a big, a, a big issue if we're not looking at that. Like one service said to me, what's the point in trying to tackle addiction if you don't look at the underlying causes? So how can we tackle that? I guess
3: we there's a distinction between being a trauma treatment service and a trauma informed service. At Tabor Group, we claim to be for- trauma-informed. Yeah. That means that we're not treating the, the trauma. We're not treating the person in terms of the original experiences that were so uh, damaging and so painful. What we are doing is we're informed about how that experience impacts their ability to cope with the demands of day-to-day living today. And we're, we're claiming to spot Mm -hmm. How a person gets triggered is the term we use triggered into emotional dysregulation and help them find other ways to retain or to regain emotional regulation, because this this dysregulation will be a key relapse trigger. So. We're not treating the trauma. We're not inviting people to talk at all about what their original experiences were or what their memories of that that are. But we are working with the person on a day to day basis, getting to know them and seeing what causes their emotional upset, what causes them to become um, aggressive over small little matters and how we can. Uh, help the person to see: Can you? How how can you cope with this trigger event without it leading to a sense of devastation or a sense of overwhelm? Mm. And and so that's trauma informed yeah. care. So there yeah. is, and and there is, a, there is a need to help people to manage that in an ongoing kind of way but we so the trauma informed is, is an important term for understanding what it is we're trying to do and those skills are useful going forward that's the that's uh, that's a key point especially in if they're if they're going to set the goal of yeah. an alcohol-free lifestyle so they're not going to use alcohol to retain their emotional regulation sure. they're going to commit to an alcohol-free lifestyle.
0: Can we just move on a little bit in the in a discussion just to maybe just talk about the children side of this? And I was very struck by in the report, you know, how often the children go unnoticed in, in, in so much of this. And as Jennifer outlined, half of those in, in treatment are, are mothers and fathers to children who have to share that journey with, 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 the, with the parent. And so I'd like to maybe just talk about some of the, some of your experiences on that direct level.
3: Yes, okay. Well, of course, one of the adverse childhood events that a client has experienced is a parental substance misuse. So, if a child is being brought up in a family where there is substance abuse, then that is um, a potentially traumatic experience for the child. Now, we get lots of people into treatment who are parents and say, oh, the children are too young to be affected. But that's a, an error on their part, or maybe it's too awful for them to consider that very small children are impacted by parental substance abuse. But the fact of the matter is that the children are affected by the, by the substance abuse. And so an important dimension to the care we try to provide is to engage the family in the management of the substance misuse because the family are impacted as well and the family need care as well. So we seek to develop services for family members. And as far as possible, we seek to give children uh, a voice and to give children a say in the the treatment episode as well. It's obviously a very delicate piece of work because we don't want to be upsetting children by asking them to talk about a parental substance misuse. But if the child can have the um, the imp- can get the clear message that it's not my fault. Uh, it's not that I'm, I just don't know what's going on around here. There's actually somebody in this family who has a problem with alcohol. And that's why uh, sometimes I don't get taken care of properly. Or that's why there's not enough money maybe for school books or school lunches or new clothes, whatever it is. So if there can be some sort of openness with the child, that has... Um, a very beneficial effect on the on the uh, on the child um so we so we would certainly be um seeking in a very gentle and caring way to involve children in the in the treatment program
0: as far as possible and it, it is the case of course we know from other research you know that obviously children who are who are who are living their lives or, or living with the chaos i should say of 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 you know parental problem alcohol use Um, You know, in many instances, they themselves, I mean, that is the whole intergenerational cycle here. They themselves move on to becoming problematic in that. And so I think in the context of that, we need to really focus on what is that focus uh, coming out of this.
2: Yeah, no, I was just reiterating what Mick is saying there. I mean, the way we would perceive addiction is that it is a family illness. So absolutely everybody is affected from the tiniest person in the household to the eldest and don't need to be in the same household to be affected it can be you know quite a broad ripple effect of of active addiction to alcohol um, but equally then the ripple effect of recovery can be remarkable so we would involve the family a hugely a huge amount throughout residential treatment and beyond so that we would provide concerned persons groups and a lot of support for families um going forward and various programs to try and help the family members but the ripple effect of helping one family member is, is quite dramatic even um throughout the, the the family with the children the whole lot so it It is a piece, it's been around for a long time where the hidden harm has to be recognized And every person needs support within the family.
1: Yeah. And I guess it did come through that some services like don't have anything. uh, But they, you know, I was just reading the report here and and one would say we have services for family members and for younger children. There isn't anything, but there needs to be something, especially for teenagers. This is a neglected area. They need counseling and therapy. You know, it's a hugely neglected area, I think, um, for sure. Yes.
2: Jennifer, I would agree it is a gap. You know, there there needs to be more joined up thinking around that piece because of the, the long term effects, obviously, on individuals with the intergenerational piece.
0: Sure.
3: We did a, another piece of research with UCC last year where we set up a small program with teenagers. And the overwhelming message from that was the teenager saying, listen, we want to talk about this. Uh, we want to talk about it. we're not we, 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 mm-hmm. we, we don't want to be so yeah. sensitive about this. we don't want this brushed under the carpet. We want to actually talk about yeah, it yeah and you see the the key The key thing for the child with the alcoholic parent, you see, what what we all needed as children was to know how important we were in the family. But in the family where there is addiction, unfortunately, the addiction comes before the children. So the child gets that message and that's a very damaging message for the child to get. So in the treatment, we want to really give a clear message to the child how important the family feel the child to be, and the fact that they're feeling taken second place is because there is a disorder. It's not that anybody is intentionally wanting to diminish the child. It's just that this disorder has taken over uh, one of the family members and has become a significant a dynamic in in the family's life, so that's a, that's an important point.
0: Yeah, and I think there's probably there's probably scope for discussion on on all of these in, in a much deeper way, but I'm I'm just conscious of time, and we're going to try and keep moving on if I can, and maybe just ask Jennifer to. Come back in and maybe just give us uh, an overview of, you know, because we've touched on what were the were the themes, but maybe we could have an opportunity just to talk a little bit about the recommendations that are in the report and maybe get some views, get, you know, the view of Sarah uh, and Mick on those ideas as well. Jennifer, could you just talk us through what were the essential, the the, the nuts and bolts of the the proposed recommendations that we've come up with?
1: Sure, yeah. So we um, would be advocating that there should be a national strategy um, setting out national standards and promoting best practice um, and a tra- this would be like a trauma informed national strategy, just like all the things that we've been talking about, set all, set out in a national document so that like all services are are doing all of these great positive things um that you guys are talking about. Because like currently we, we don't really know, you know, so so we need to ensure that um services are kind of um, you know, coming up to a certain standard and that they are providing like this this breadth of multidisciplinary um, services that you guys are talking about. Um, And especially when we know now that trauma is an almost universal experience of people with mental health and substance use problems, like the evidence is, is becoming more overwhelming all the time and that addiction rarely exists when there is no underlying trauma. So that's really important. And we also um, are advocating for um, a HICWA inspection regime um, because, you know, residential treatment services are kind of one of the last residential areas where there is no HICWA um, inspection. And, you know, this is a vulnerable Population, and we just need that oversight and to to kind of see what's what's going on and make sure that there's national standards that they're being monitored against. And like this happened for disability services some years back, and I think it's been seen as a really positive, um you know, influence on those services. And again, this was advocated for by a HSE expert group report recommended this in 2007. So um, again, we're just reiterating that. So I, I'll, I'll just go with those two, and, and maybe we can get some feedback from the guys. on on those
3: since 2008 um centers like TAPO group and ashoree the addiction treatment centers of ireland um, engage with the vhi toward an accreditation process and we have had contract a contract with an english-based group called chks to provide accreditation or inspection for each of our centers since then and so and And that is happening, and that we are uh, accredited according to standards including healthcare standards of the h s e
1: yeah, and I guess. Yeah, I suppose, Mick, what we'd be saying is that we'd like to see, like, HICWA reports are public. They're um, all, every every service has to do this, like, and every service has to comply with national standards. In our, and we would like to see this under an Irish regime and public, like, public reports to be made available so that everybody can kind of see what's going on. No, I would agree.
2: I would agree, Jennifer. Well. But- uh fortunately the chks requirements are very much aligned with hq so it won't be a, a, a difficult yeah.
3: uh, shift yeah.
2: for for any of these services to 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 come across but Equally, it may not be the case throughout Ireland, you know, in that there are all different tiers of services that may not be
1: may not be, re- may not be re- re- ready, maybe or or no. that yeah. So I guess it just no. in terms of transparency, I, I suppose making services better and um, as good as they can be across the board, we we, we would be advocating for that.
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely, um, and the piece in regards to the the multidisciplinary teams. I mean, they're absolutely vital and it kind of leads into one of your other recommendations. But having that diversity on a team allows a client to be a great deal safer. So even when you consider um, women and and people coming in that, that require specialized care, like maybe pregnant or, you know, dealing with issues like that, having 24-hour nursing teams which we're fortunate to have in Ashiree really makes an enormous difference and for those clients that are a little more elderly and have more medical issues and concerns um you know, it's great to be able to have that kind of wraparound service for them.
1: And just to pick up, Sarah, um, and another um, the issue of
2: detox that you mentioned earlier,
1: that you guys have yes. your own, you, you know, you saw the gap and you kind of created your own service. Like, what do you think? Obviously, detox came up as a, as a big issue. And as you say, people detox on their own, as they say, in the community, at home and that kind of thing. Like, what would be an ideal from a national perspective? You know, if we did have a national strategy, let's say, what would you want to see in there? in terms of detox
2: i would really like to see similar to what we have here in ashari care in kilkenny is residential detox beds available for people to safely detox off the substances in a in a safe environment and medically um managed or monitored which is how we operate and you know the effect that that's had Jennifer is remarkable for access to treatment Mm. people that never would have been able to to manage to get into an abstinence-based treatment have Mm. now been able to to move towards it so realistically we just need a great deal more of uh, residential detox throughout the country
0: sure and, and there was a couple of other recommendations that the report highlighted as well. maybe we can close with those recommendations and maybe talk a little bit about those
1: hmm sure I suppose um one of the big things that came through as well was that I guess um you know s- services needed to have um adequate staffing and that it was difficult to get kind of i suppose um Staff that really understood the 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 addiction landscape, and I guess this goes back to to training, and um, you know that we recommended that a, a third level course should be developed to train people to work in specialist substance use services, and that modules needed to be um, there, you know, for addiction and covering all things like Aces and trauma, and really getting to the heart of things because we don't have that at the moment. I think no,
2: absolutely. What we've recognised that you know historically in these treatment centers, centers like Ashari and Tabor, there was a a training call that was aligned with Hazelden in America and it had quite a large placement capacity in it and it was most effective for for helping people um, really educate themselves on how uh, treatment is best provided. So with the college and the academic piece that are starting to move and shift, you know, where, where they're Putting more pieces in place. Um, the placement is a big emphasis, and I would be really emphasizing placement as a key element of the trainings.
0: Make what what's your your own your own take on some of these. Well,
3: we're, we're the psychotherapeutic profession is facing regulation uh, nationally um, with QQI and KORU in, in 2023. I think was the last date on that, and so we need to make sure the addiction counsellors are part of that, and that the addiction counsellors are are rising to the to that standard for registration, and that there's a, a commitment to ongoing professional uh, development, and that that um, training courses throughout the country. Um, in counseling and psychotherapy are have modules that deal with the issues that we're talking about here, so that it becomes established within the profession that somebody has a competency to make an assessment where there's alcohol problems, and also to provide supportive interventions and referral to treatment programmes. We need that to be standard uh, nationally going forward.
0: Yeah, and then there's finally just the, the recommendations about children and, and, and the need for perhaps greater investment that's required in those. I mean, is there is there a, a couple of points perhaps we can just close on in relation to what we think we should be focusing on going forward in terms of, of the needs of children? Mm-hmm there needs to be communication with
3: children there needs to be an acknowledgement that children are impacted um, they need to be brought into the picture more in a in a safe way in
1: a sensitive way i think adults sometimes think that children should you know it's going to harm a child if you if bring this up with them but like you said make children want to be heard they want to to process their experience you know so and not doing so can be more you know more damaging
0: I suppose there needs to be an architecture around that then, is there, in, in terms of how, how it interacts with that treatment program for, for the individual as well?
2: Yeah, no, absolutely. Once once a person comes into a treatment for addiction, I think there needs to be the process of, of assessment for the whole family and then potential referrals out for each uh, family member to the appropriate services. So it, it's really Strategically looking at what services need to be put in place to manage those needs. Mm,
1: exactly. Yeah, investment in, in things like primary care psychology service, school psychology and those things.
0: Yeah, I, I think we've covered a lot of ground this morning, but unfortunately, we're, we're, we're pretty much out of time now at this stage. I suppose what I'd like to do just to close, is I'd like to thank our guests, um, Sarah Cassidy from Ashere and Mick Devine from the Tabor Group and, of course, my own colleague, Jennifer Hall, for the work on this report and for their contribution this morning. If you'd like to learn more about the findings and recommendations of the Alcohol Action Alcohol Treatment Service report, you can download a copy from our website at alcoholireland.ie, where you can also read a blog posting from Jennifer that calls for a new approach to alcohol treatment services. And of course, you can keep in touch with Alcohol Action by following us on Alcohol Ireland across all social media platforms. Next time on The Alcohol File, we will be focusing on women and alcohol and the journey of alcohol use throughout the the life course and examining some of the dynamics around the targeted gender alcohol marketing. But for now, thank you for listening today. And until the next time, stay safe.